Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Crazy Money. My guest this week actually was my guest 18 months ago. This is a special encore edition of Crazy Money with my guest, Oliver Berkman. Oliver is an amazing journalist and thinker. He's the author of a book called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. He has appeared on Crazy Money twice because he's so darn thoughtful and thinks about things that I care about. In his first visit, he discussed his book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. And if you know me, you know just by hearing the title of that book why I love it. Because I'm a positive person, but I don't like a bunch of nonsense in my life. That's why I love Oliver, because that's who he is. He came to mind the other day after I put out a Substack article that I'm going to read to you in just a second when a former colleague from Facebook, Kelly Stonelake, hello, Kelly, how are you? Hope you're doing well. She said, hey, you know, this really reminded me of a guy's work that I love. Have you ever heard of Oliver Berkman? And I was like, Kelly, have I heard of him? I've had him on the podcast twice. As I think about episodes to reshare, you know, I start with the LL Cool J's and the Mobies and the Ryan Holidays, the biggest names I can think of. But every so often I'm reminded of interviews that I just really enjoy because I love the conversation. I love the person whose whose mind I get to probe, and Oliver is one of them. So I know you're going to enjoy the interview with Oliver, and I'll tell you more about him after I finish this article. This is an article that came out last week on my Substack. There's a link to it in the show notes. I'm putting out articles every two weeks on there. It's a forcing function, so I continue to write, which I really love to do in a world of TikToks and Instagrams where I'm struggling to find a way to be authentic on those platforms. You know, there's just something about the written word where I get to take an idea, bend it around, twist it around, and then through the act of writing, I get to understand how I really feel about it. And I'm getting better. I'm getting better as a writer, and I really enjoy the process of improvement. So if you're interested in reading more of my thoughts, please go to the Substack and subscribe. There's a free version, and I am more than happy for you to subscribe for free. There's also a paid version which if you want to subsidize the editing and booking of this show, which is outsourced to find people who work hard to make that happen, well, that's where that money would go. So please consider doing either. This article is called Staying Hungry When Your Life is Full. It's written by me, Paul Ollinger, April 18th, 2023. I weighed in this morning at 224.5 pounds, it's the heaviest I've been since I lost the sympathy weight after our first child. His name is Elvis. Last time, my heft resulted from a back injury, lots of business travel, and the cupcakes my pregnant wife would bring to the office. I was pudgy, like Ned Beatty and Deliverance Soft. Parentheses. And we know what happened to him. Close parentheses. I'm much stronger now, but the scale reveals the inconvenient truth that my biceps, triceps, and glutes are Wagyu caliber marbled. It's all diet, and I know it. I work out with a trainer on Mondays and Thursdays, and I walk at least 15 miles per week. But what, when, and how I eat breaks all the rules. Oddly, it's me living my dreams that causes this fitness challenge. If you work a 9-to-5 job, you can mostly digest your dinner before you nestle down. But my schedule is staggered five hours to the right. To even stay awake for comedy shows past 10 p.m., I drink a cup of coffee at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. After the show, I'm still totally wired and nowhere near ready for bed. When I get home, there's a pan of brownies on the counter, leftover pot pie in the fridge, and an open bottle of red wine begging for me to finish it off. Who am I to resist? So I jam 1,200 calories down my gullet at 11.30 p.m., then watch Golf Central and fall asleep on the couch. 
an hour later, I'll wake up, brush my teeth, get in bed, and then set the alarm for 6.15 a.m. so I can wake the kids up, at which point I'll slam three cups of coffee to get myself going again. Coffee up, Cabernet down. I'm like a preppy Elvis, and it's starting to show. This weight gain is actually an indication of how lucky I am. I'm doing exactly what I want in life, if maybe not quite at the level I'd like to be doing it. I make audiences laugh, then return to a beautiful home where my wife is sleeping in bed with the dog and my two healthy children are snuggled in upstairs. I can't imagine not doing both comedy and parenting at full speed. But fuck, man. I think my body is a metaphor for life in the primo zip codes. Last year, I said no to a half dozen golfer ski trips, Vail, Bandon Dunes, Ireland, etc., It's not that I don't want to go. I love to golf and I love to ski. But if that's all you do, that's what you'll be good at. As worthy and healthy as these pursuits might be, they're not what I feel called to work on. In a world of opulent distractions, I'm trying to stay hungry. Why? Ernest Becker, author of The Denial of Death, might suggest that I'm striving for immortality. The pursuit to play bigger rooms or get millions of people to listen to my podcast, he would argue, is an attempt to prove not only that I existed, but that I mattered. This is certainly true on some level and part of the dignified madness that makes us uniquely human. Within a generation or two, 99.9% of us will exist only as diluted DNA in the double helices of our great-grandchildren, if that. We know this, if only subconsciously, and we fight it every day. But I honestly think it's something else also, not just a futile pursuit of immortality, but the genuine embrace of mortality. The opportunity to be who we want to be is right here, right now, and there's no guarantee it will be here tomorrow, kind of like the leftovers in the fridge. So whether there are 30 or 3,000 people in the audience, the function is the same. My life will not mean any more or less if I get famous or if my podcast finally gets the recognition it so richly deserves. Why not stop and smell the flowers? This is smelling the flowers. The whole reason I chose this path was to avoid the deathbed remorse of wondering what if I had given the creative life a full swing or regretting that I had not been a better dad or husband. The pursuit matters. My kids will never be this age again, and as porky as I am right now, hopefully temporarily, I will never be this young or healthy again. So I'm gathering rosebuds, I'm busy being born, and all that shit. Like frost in the snowy woods, I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. But before I go to bed, I think I'll finish the rest of that pot pie. The end. Carpe diem, ladies and gentlemen. Oliver Berkman is part of the information and part of the thinking that I'm digesting, a broad selection of books that I'm digesting as much as I'm digesting the pot pie that helps me think about these things. His book, 4,000 Weeks, and by the way, 4,000 Weeks equals about 80 years or how long each of us is expected to live on average, really dives into the topics that I touch on in this article, maybe because of the inspiration of, of Oliver, even though I wasn't even thinking about him while I wrote this article. Why do we strive to work so hard? What's the best way we can spend our days? What are the things in life that make us the happiest? And how can we use our limited time to the benefit of ourselves, of those we love, and to the world? This is Oliver Berkman. Oliver Berkman, welcome back to Crazy Money. Thanks very much for asking me. I feel like Terry Gross when I say that. I feel like I've been on the air for 40 years now, and you know these are old friends, but it's nice to see you again. 
<laughs> when I finished writing my Guardian column last year, somebody, I've been doing it weekly for more than a decade, somebody got in touch to say they'd grown up with my writing and it was meant as a compliment, but mm. I just made me feel so old. <laughs> Well, the youngest Crazy Money listener has not grown up with Crazy Money yet, but we're all growing up together in middle age. We're all trying to, right. and that's kind of the theme of a lot of your writing, right? It's a lot of it is, is how do we become better people? How do we become more evolved human beings? And the title of the new book is 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. Your opening statement is this, in the long run, we're all dead. And I was like, there's the Oliver Berkman I've come to love. <laughs> Yeah, not an original quote, but yeah, yeah. This is a book about the fact that life is finite, which I think is not a depressing thought. But I'm always a little, con I'm a little concerned titling the book 4,000 Weeks, which is the average length of a, it's an 80-year lifespan approximately in weeks. I'm a little concerned that people might just figure that out and run away scared <laughs> rather than like purchasing the book and finding out that it's not a cause for despair. Well, you know, I, as I was Googling the title to go to your website or to see where the book was being sold or whatever, and I came across these calendars that people make, 4,000-week calendars, where you actually mm -hmm. cross off or fill in the blanks of all the 4,000 weeks of your lives as you go. Right. That seems to be far more morbid than acknowledging it than making the connection between our finite lives and time management. Right. And I think there's sort of two ways to go wrong with this. One is to sort of think that there's something incredibly terrifying and depressing about mortality, which I guess is not going wrong because I think there is something terrifying and depressing, but there's a way of sort of metabolizing that that can become energizing. The other, and I'm also sort of at pains to steer clear of this, I think, is that kind of idea that you've got to incredibly stressfully go through life seizing the day in an incredibly self-conscious way and making sure you go base jumping every single weekend because otherwise <laughs> you're not really sucking the marrow out of life. And I don't think that's a fun way to be either, actually, to be so sort of panicky about the fact that you only live once that you can't relax. So I'm sort of trying to steer a path between those. I actually have a bit about, I'm a comedian, as you may or may not remember, yeah, and yeah. I've got heart disease. The most annoying thing when I told people I had it, they'd say, you've got to live every day as if it's your last. And it's like, <laughs> no, you don't. I don't need a squirrel suit. I don't need to go base jumping. <laughs> if right. we all know life is short, why shouldn't we try to make it perfect? The idea that I'm getting at here, I think, is that so much of our instinctive and culturally reinforced ways of relating to time both in the context of like time management and productivity advice, which we can talk about if you want, but also just more generally, the purpose that it really serves is kind of enabling our delusion that we're limitless, that we're going to live forever, <laughs> that we don't have to make tough choices, rather than pushing us gently towards that discomforting but true state of affairs. And the thing I really want to try to convey is that this isn't even a recipe for a happy life. I think that when you spend your whole life kind of avoiding the issue, trying to convince yourself that just around the corner, like next week or next month, you're going to have everything in working order and then you're going to be able to like be on top of everything. You're going to be able to handle all the obligations that come at you, make time for all the things that matter to you. Like you never get there. And there's something deeply sort of relaxing about actually and liberating about sort of dropping back down into the truth that being finite means... You're going to have to choose between things. You're not going to be on top of everything. You're going to probably fail to enact all sorts of ambitions you might have had. And the more that you can sort of own that, the more time and energy and attention you have 
to focus on a few things that you really care about and get the most out of them. So it's like once you let that go, that kind of impossible quest, that's when you have like the focus and the the power, I think, to do the possible things, which is where life gets really meaningful and fun. One of the main points you come at a couple of different ways is what you just said, that the day will never arrive when you have everything under control. So we might as well stop trying and distracting ourselves from our own mortality and or imperfection by trying to get everything done. So you feel strongly that when you just let go of it and pick your path, your handful of things that you're going to concentrate on, you'll be better at the things that are actually more relevant to who you are as a human being. Right. And I want to be clear, like, it's a constant struggle for me, too. I haven't, like, achieved some perfect acceptance of my own mortality or anything like that. But I think that we are, I've got better at it. And we're misled because we live in this world of kind of effectively infinite inputs, right? There are an infinite Effectively, there are an infinite number of emails you could receive, demands that your boss could make if you're in that kind of a job, or business ideas you might want to pursue, exotic places you might want to travel, people you could at least potentially date if you're on an internet dating platform, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's all effectively infinite. And it's just simple math, right? If you're trying to sort of encompass uh, and find time for and get around to an infinite number of things when you're finite, like that can only be a recipe for anxiety and never quite getting to that point. So I think that what I'm, I suppose what I'm saying is that we already all are making hard choices at every moment, right? Every time you decide to spend an hour on anything, you're neglecting a million other things in order to do it. The difference is that like, can you do that a bit more consciously? Can you accept that that is what we're all doing and see that like the real art of time management is not figuring out how to become perfectly optimized, but making the right choices about like what to neglect because neglecting things is a given. It's just baked into the situation. And I've found to the degree that there isn't something in the back of my mind thinking any day now, I'm going to get to all of these things. <laughs> like that's just, it's such a weight off my shoulders to know that like, yeah, okay, this thing matters and this thing matters. And this other thing, it's not even just a matter of getting rid of the things that don't matter. It's a matter of choosing between things that all matter because there's just too much. So none of us is ever going to paint our masterpiece. Is that the idea? I'm not sure I want to say that. No, I think if what you mean by the masterpiece is the perfect thing that you're holding out for, then I think it's really useful to understand that like the baked in imperfection here means you might as well just get started with stuff because mm. the sort of perfect thing doesn't exist in the world. But I also think from another interpretation of that, phrase, you know, this is how to paint your masterpiece, right? To sort of come back down to earth, to enter into reality, and to stop pursuing these kind of ways of organizing your time that are all just based on like tricking yourself into thinking that next week you're going to be on top of everything. I feel like we got very deep very quickly. Um, well, I, I, blame, I blame your questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'll accept that responsibility. Tell me why you like walking on the English countryside so much. One of the challenges of using time well is that if you really focus too much on the idea of using time well, you end up like instrumentalizing every minute of the day, right? So everything you're doing, you do for the purposes of something else. And if you're someone with a history of being a productivity geek like I am, this becomes a real serious issue with work, right? Because everything... You're doing it to get through it, 
uh, get on top of all your lists, la, 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 la. It's like the value of the work is never right there. It's for something in the future. And this has happened to leisure in a big way, I think, especially in the last few decades, right? That it doesn't quite feel okay to be using your leisure time in a way that isn't improving you in some way. But then again, if you overinvest in that, you're always, you're never quite enjoying yourself. You're always on a path to enjoying yourself. And hiking, to come back to your question, is a good example of what the philosopher Kieran Setia, who I quote in the book, calls an atelic activity. It's something that like, you can only really do it for itself. I mean, there's some fitness benefits and maybe you're, I don't know, collecting butterflies or something. But the real reason to go on a hike, as I yeah love to do in the northern English countryside in the Yorkshire Dales and the North York Moors, is to go on the hike. And if you really wanted to do it most efficiently, which we're or in a sort of optimized way, you would just never go because <laughs> well, you, you start at the beginning and you go around in a loop or you sometimes like get to a certain point and turn back. Well, there's no point in any of that except in itself. And I think that's probably true on some level of all hobbies. It seems a little bit embarrassing in this day and age to admit to having or wanting to have a hobby. And I think that's got something to do with the fact that it doesn't serve a purpose outside itself. Whereas, as I say in the book, if you call your hobby a side hustle and you're trying to make money out of it, that's super cool and fashionable. But we need more of this atelic hobby stuff just because if you don't have any of it in life, then your life is never for now, right? It's always for some time in the future. I mean, you know that problem. A good friend of mine recently referred to this podcast as a hobby and I was offended. <laughs> I was offended, Oliver. I said, I work very hard at this. I take this very seriously. All right. And then I thought about it. I was like, okay, it's not profitable. It's not making me famous. I do it for the love of it. And I do it right. for the meaning of the conversations, which other people get, not millions of people, but hundreds, maybe thousands mm -hmm. of people get some value out of. So why do I take offense at the word hobby? What's wrong with that word? What should it be called? Well, I mean, yeah, we need to rehabilitate that word hobby and see that it's kind of subversive, I think, in this day and age to pursue one. There's sort of two layers of this going on, right? One part of it is straightforwardly economic. We're so conditioned, I think, by the system that we live in that if it's not primarily to make money, it has a kind of a stigma attached. But it goes beyond that, as I say, to just the idea that it's got to have some future purpose. It's got to be building up to something. It's got to all have its point of fruition, completion in the future. And, you know, of course, we do that stuff all the time. And if I didn't have that attitude towards writing a book, I'd never get the book written. It, right. It, but if you only have it in your life, then you're sort of building up to, like, what? A minute on your deathbed when you get to look back and say, I did all the right stuff, but then you've missed your life. So there's a difference between taking a walk on the beautiful countryside and training for an Ironman, right? Right. So where's the line and how do you decide what to do every day? If, <laughs> if on the one hand, we always live for some future better time, we miss the present and we don't have a life. On the other hand, if we never plan for the present, we likely won't make too much of our time, you know? Right. So how do you decide what to do every day? I mean, I don't think I've got a brilliant answer otherwise, oh, other than that you need, you need both. <laughs> you need both. And you probably have a good sense. I think most people do have a good sense of whether their life is out of whack in one direction or the other. And I think it's just a question, you know, to get a little bit sort of 
Jungian and depth psychology about it, which I, I also do in the book, I think it's a question of sort of listening to your insides, right? I think people know when they're not, when they don't think that what they're mainly doing with their lives is meaningful. And it can be very strange. Like they can be doing jobs that many of us might look down on, but if they're doing them for a reason that matters to them deeply, like if they're saying like, look, my situation in life is that I got to do this crappy job if I want to support my kids. The meaning is there because there's a why. I think that it's a question of isolating what the things are that sometimes lead to that lack of meaning. And for sort of driven, high achieving people, like I've always thought of myself as, and like Kieran Satia, who writes about this in a very sort of personal way as well, thinks of himself as, the problem is likely not to be too much time spent not working on any long-term projects and interesting creations. The problem is likely to be never stopping the sort of instrumental stuff in favor of things that give their value in the moment. You have a quote from Nietzsche in the book where you say, haste is universal because everyone is in flight from himself. Yeah, I love that. I find that to be true. And I think as I've reflected over the past couple of years doing the podcast, I, to some degree, believe that my quest for achievement has been just that, has been, if I see myself getting the right third-party accolades, then I know I'm doing okay. And -hmm. the way I do that is by keeping myself busy and always striving for the next rung of the ladder. And as I reflect on it, I kind of think, well, that's probably just because I wasn't taking the time to live every day. Are we distracting ourselves? Yeah, but I think, you know, the thing that is important in that Nietzsche quote is like, haste is universal. This is nothing to be ashamed of because there's something sort of deeply baked in. I don't think it's shameful. And, you know, there's times in life where, you know, I did need to strive for the next level. I'm, I've, right. I have the luxury of being able to be a little bit more contemplative today because I don't have to make my rent for next month. Right. You know, I think that there's a sort of basic question that we can all do with asking ourselves, which is something like, what things am I doing in my life that I'm mainly doing so that I don't have to feel certain feelings that I <laughs> believe would be kind of catastrophic for me to have to feel. And I think that's what Nietzsche is getting at. I think I think it's what Heidegger is getting at, although Heidegger is famously impenetrable. So, you know, I don't claim <laughs> to have nailed what he's saying. But this notion that what it all comes down to at the end is we are these finite beings with brains and minds capable of infinite imaginings. And it makes us really uncomfortable to sort of accept that, like, this is it that life isn't a dress rehearsal, that we can only do so much, that we don't know how the future's going to unfold, that we're sort of vulnerable to events at every moment, like anything could happen at any moment. It's all kind of yucky and claustrophobic in a way. And so, yeah, we do all sorts of things to sort of not feel that. And some of it is stuff like you're working on a writing project and just to speak from experience, you're working on a writing project and it's like hard and you don't know that you're up to it. So it's way more fun to be on Twitter because the, f- the feeling of being on Twitter is this kind of limitless, I can just float through infinity doing what I want and present being who I want and la la la. But I think it's also there in things like commitment phobia, something that I have historical experience of, not, not <laughs> as a day, but you know, you know, where if you sort of constantly feel like you're keeping your options open and never making the leap into a relationship in a, in a deep way, it's like you're sort of floating above this situation of being pinned down to reality. It's like you're sort of, you're at one remove in a kind of quasi kind of godlike 
state or something. It doesn't work because you're actually not. It's just in your head. But so I think pretty much everything is, I think I've probably got a grand theory of humanity here that like pretty much all bad things that ever happen are people trying to, trying to not feel the truth of the situation that they're in. <laughs> you try to connect sort of the mundane or the quotidian to the infinite, right? And, right. and our desire that we believe that we each have cosmic significance and that desire to write a book that is going to make me famous and world-renowned or to find that, you know, to quote Jerry Maguire, that, that relationship that completes me is utter foolishness, right? Like, it's okay to write a book if what you're writing has value in and of itself. And love for love's sake is great, but don't expect too much from either of those things. It's tricky to talk about because I kind of, again, it depends on what you mean by a relationship that completes you, right? I mean, I don't want to, I really don't want to be the person saying like, lower your expectations and just expect to have a kind of mediocre, crappy life. But what I do think you should do is not have expectations that are in principle kind of impossible to meet and to expect of a relationship partner that they be something more than another flawed human being. Right. That's that's, craziness. But that's what I mean. And I read something not long ago that the number one reason people get divorced is unrealistic expectations about what it's going to be. And we talked in our last conversation, talking about your book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, a book I loved, and everybody should go and read it if they haven't read it already. (laughs) It's that high expectations are really the things that make us unhappy and that having a realistic expectation of what life presents to us is going to lead us to live a better, more content life. Right. And not just a sort of zoned out, like one step removed life, but a more involved and committed life, right? I mean, my experience so far anyway, is that you can have a much deeper and more fulfilling kind of relationship or a relationship with your work or whatever you're talking about to the extent that you're not relying on it to provide something that is outside the bounds of possibility. Alain de Botton, the philosopher and writer, has this great like riff, and he wrote a New York Times piece about it, about uh, why you will marry the wrong person, which is kind <laughs> of, which is kind of, I kind of love because it's about how, you know, we have all this kind of mess of different motivations. We're looking to recreate certain things from missing from our childhood, or we're projecting all the things we aren't in touch with in ourselves onto somebody else. But the universality of it, is kind of great because it just means everyone's in the same boat. And if you can sort of stick with someone and, and both be committed to working through this kind of ridiculous predicament of being a human, that's the best thing that there is. So it is lowering your expectations, but it's lowering them kind of into, into reality and real happiness is obviously worth infinitely more than fake hasn't arrived yet. Might arrive one day unreal happiness. So, right. Yeah. So here's something I wrote down, which maybe it captures the spirit. Maybe it doesn't. Okay. The universe doesn't necessarily care about me, but my kids do. My <laughs> right. wife does. I have the potential to help my neighbor. And if I focus my time on these things, that I'll actually be in a better position than if I were to try to operate as if I have cosmic significance. Right. I quote in a book, a philosopher called Ido Landau, who's written a book, Finding Meaning in an Imperfect World. And he talks about how we set these very bizarre standards for what counts as a meaningful life that pretty much by definition rules out 99% of the things that we can do. TikTok, et cetera, Instagram, yeah, yeah. everything. Right, right. I mean, if your goal 
is to be remembered by history, you know, thousands of years hence or something like that. If you've got to change the world in the sense that we normally mean by that phrase, you're automatically saying that thousands of things that we obviously know are meaningful don't count because they're not going to have that effect. And it's not that you can't invent amazing things and make a big splash and win elected office or invent extraordinary devices or software or whatever. You know, it's not that these things aren't part of that. It's that this kind of definition of meaning rules out so many of the things that give texture and substance to our lives. It's just a kind of, it's a really odd one to go around burdened with because it just means that all these things to do with personal relationships and sort of steadily doing some fairly useful work that makes a difference to a few people. I'm in this right now with this book, actually, because like I write this newsletter and I write articles and I write this book. And like the thing I love the most about the work that I do is when you get one-to-one responses from individual people who've been like seriously, significantly moved or affected. I want to reach out about something I've written. Just a person, right? It's not actually a quest for modern fame, right? There isn't a part of me when I think about it consciously that wants to be, I don't know, Kanye West or something, right? Or the president. But we've set this strange, we've got this strange idea now so that if you're doing anything with a little bit of a public profile, like so many of us are in journalism, podcasting, book writing, whatever, you sort of find yourself slipping into this mindset sometimes. Like what you're trying to do is scramble up that pyramid that only like five people can ever be at the pinnacle of. When I stop to think about it, it's like, I don't want to be at the top of that pinnacle. It'll be, it'll be total hell. I mean, it's certainly out of the realm of possibility that I would get to that level of fame, I think, but I also think it would be awful. And it wouldn't be the thing that I find most meaningful about the work that I do. So you've got to sort of be careful not to borrow other people's or the culture's definition of a meaningful life and let it sort of take you too far away from what would be a meaningful life for you? And being aware of what you think will be a meaningful life, because we think one thing which sometimes isn't exactly what contributes to meaningful life, but you actually tried this, right? You tried to align the hours of your day with your values. Oh, I've tried every one of these techniques, right? Where you're sort of like, <laughs> there are some crazy books out there. These are books that say, it always says like, there's always like one page at the beginning of one of these kind of life planning books. It says like, first of all, figure out your core values. Okay, now, and you're like, hang on. How do I figure out my core values? What the heck does that mean? But then, yes, if you sort of think you've figured out your core values, you then try and figure out all the different ways this week and then this day and then this hour that you're going to, you quickly go insane. But I think it's an example of a broader thing that I write a bit about, which is this idea, this kind of, well, it's time management, right? It's the idea that your relationship to time is something like it's a thing and you can kind of manipulate and direct it, and that this is going to lead to the most satisfying life. But there's something really weird about that idea, isn't there? Because time, as many people have observed, like it can't be managed. It just passes, and you get one moment of it at a time, and you can't put it aside for later. It's not like money in that respect. Actually, one of the most interesting parts of putting this book together was sort of doing the research to discover how many points in history, and then maybe even also some kind of certain indigenous communities today, this whole notion of time didn't apply, right? This idea that our time is something that we have to use in a certain way, or that is kind of weighing down on us or running out, or we might be wasting it or or stewarding it well. That whole idea, as opposed to just time being the, the medium in which life flows, like 
none of these questions would have made any sense to like a early medieval English peasant, for example. Like it just would not have made any sense to talk about. But that person's life was nothing but obligation. That's one way of thinking of it. I mean, it's a bad example in one sense, which is that that person's life was certainly terrible in many ways, right? I mean, um, <laughs> I wasn't using and, those as synonyms, but yeah, right. But no, and well, actually, it's a really interesting point there, right? I mean, yes, putting aside the ways in which a medieval English peasant just had a terrible life, there was another sense in which that life was was structured by obligation, which was that you know, if you're a farmer, the cows need milking when they need milking, and the crops need harvesting when they need harvesting, right? The tasks of life offer no scope for like, oh, I don't know, like, let's do all the milking for the month today so that we can get it out of the way and be more optimized and efficient. Like, it's just not going to happen. You're you're yoked to reality in a different way, as you would be like, even if it wasn't kind of massively exploited by the feudal lords and suffering from diseases where their limbs fell off all the time and everything. So it's just a, it's just a sort of, I certainly don't think that we should go back to any aspect of the lifestyle of medieval peasants. But I think there is something to learn from this. You know, there is something to learn from that idea of not constantly trying to sort of back out of reality and then manipulate it, but what it feels like to just acknowledge that you just are in it. And it happens for us sometimes, you know, and I write and I always think about the experience of being a parent of a newborn, which I'm not anymore, but I was a few years ago. That's another example, I suspect, it was far more true for my wife even than it was for me. But where you're so governed by the rhythms, kid wakes up, the kid needs feeding, the kid needs a diaper changing. Something stressful about time is taken out of the equation there. Even though the circumstances can be very stressful because like, you just had a kid and you don't know what the hell you're doing and how do you keep it alive. But there's something is taken away, which is this kind of weighty oblig- thing that sits on a lot of our shoulders, I think, in the modern world of sort of like... How should I use my time best? How should I structure my day? What order should I do things in? What's my priority here? Am I living a meaningful life? There's something incredibly liberating about those moments when you're just like, no choice. (laughs) And you've got an anecdote of the book about a woman who kind of went back to nature and tried to live a more simple life. So should we all be pulling like a Thoreau on a cul-de-sac kind of life? Should (laughs) should I be churning my own butter? Would I find life to be more satisfying? And of course... We know that Thoreau actually had someone, he took his laundry back into town or something and like had a, <laughs> went back to his mother's house on a regular basis. No, I don't think it's about the specific lifestyle you choose, but the very interesting thing about the person you're mentioning there, Sylvia Kiesmatt, who's a Bible scholar and an agriculturalist, that's an example of a life I argue, and because she argues it, uh, rejecting convenience as a kind of thing to organize your life around. So it's not that it's better to like live rurally or do farm type things instead of web development type things. But it is that if you just sort of go with the flow of our cultures drift towards ever more convenient technologies and lifestyles and et cetera, et cetera, you know, the way everything moves online because it's faster and more efficient, the way you can sort of order food from your phone without having any interaction with a human being, let alone cooking the food. If, if you just go with this flow, somebody else is making the decision for you about what a meaningful life is, right? Because it's basically Silicon Valley deciding, well, these are the things we can get rid of and smooth out. And these are the things that people really want. And we tend to collaborate with it because actually, you know, 
when you're just really hungry, you do want to press a button and get some food delivered to your door. But you take a step back and you realize that actually, you know, little interactions with other human beings when you go out to get food or the things that you get from chopping vegetables and choosing vegetables in the supermarket and making things like we don't want them in that moment when we're hungry and just want the quickest thing, but we do really benefit from them. So I think you could totally internalize that perspective and absolutely remain living in a city, working with computers and not milking your own cows or whatever. But it's just that sort of conscious stepping back of like, how far am I being guided by forces that are not don't have my best interests at heart into like what constitutes a well-organized day? Why is it better organized for me to get my food instantaneously at the push of a button instead of cooking it? Well, maybe for you it is, but maybe it isn't. You write that when you render a process more convenient, you drain it of its meaning. So that's why a handwritten letter is more satisfying than a text or a meal cooked with friends has more depth to it than uh, ordering a pizza by yourself. There seems to be this overlap between things that feel a bit like the work involved, the chore, the effort, and the sense that it really mattered. You know, I live in the US and have lots of family in the UK, and I have traditionally been very bad at remembering their to mark their birthdays on time. And one of the things you end up doing in those situations is you use these services where you go online and you pick a photo or you upload a photo and you put a funny message and it prints a card and sends it locally from from the UK and it gets there on time. And I suppose it's better than nothing, but like, I think everyone in that process is aware <laughs> that something has been missed. Because, and they say it's a thought that counts. Well, I had the thought, right. but no, I think what counts in that situation is like that you put in some time to going and buying a card and thinking of it in time and, and writing in it with a pen and or sending a gift, whatever. But I think convenience sort of speaks to our worst selves and it leads us into this situation where like you end up doing what's most convenient instead of what you would be happiest to have done. The best part of that is that on January 1st of any given year, you could fill out all of those birthday cards. <laughs> right. You right. can't pre-milk a cow, but you can preload birthday cards for the year for all of your family. And actually, I want to start a service now. Does, does this exist where you could then just deliver all those cards to, to one company who would then like dispatch them through the year? It's exactly the I, right I, time. Theoretically, you could do it decades in yeah. advance. I mean, yeah. you'd probably overpay for people who died early. You'd probably offend the relatives of those people, wouldn't you, when, when the card arrived? All right. Speaking of offense, <laughs> there was one issue in the book that I take particular umbrage at, which is <laughs> the fact that you seem to argue that it's pointless to get to the airport early, which is a middle-aged <laughs> man is one of my favorite things to do. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I come from like childhood trauma on this issue because <laughs> I come from a family of compulsive planners who... Um, you know, leave like multiple hours to uh, get to the airport and get to the railway station. They end up like hanging around for hours because they left so much slack. I mean, look, do it if you want, but I think that what I'm, what, I think what I'm criticizing. You're on, you're on my wife's side. You're on my. You realize this is this is affecting I mean, my marriage. I'm, I'm actually on your side. Like I'm, I'm fighting the compulsive planning tendency in myself. Right. So, like, no, I am not that person. I, I'm in a sort of inner process of struggling with that person. But the point I'm sort of making is 
we people who want to sort of be incredibly cautious and plan everything out and make sure everything works, we're trying to achieve something that you can't actually ever achieve, which is reassurance that the future will unfold in the way that you think you need it to. So you'll notice, I think, maybe you'll tell me I'm wrong, but like, you'll notice that like the mindset of leaving lots of hours to go to the airport doesn't actually go along with then like totally relaxing and being happy. It's kind of a, you sort of stay on edge. And the reason you stay on edge, I argue, is because, well, firstly, you can't be certain that you're leaving enough time to get to the airport, right? I mean, you could leave six hours to do a one-hour journey and something <laughs> could still get in the way. And then secondly, then you've just got whether the flight leaves on time to worry about. And then you've got whether the flight arrives on time for your onward connection to worry about. Right? The time just keeps on going. So the future like doesn't stop. And so you can't ever get the grip on it that I think planning is often an attempt to get. And so I think it's a recipe for sort of systematically a kind of recipe for constant anxiety because you're trying and trying and failing and failing to control something that nobody can control, which is the future that hasn't happened yet. So no better example of our inability to control our environment than what we've all gone through in the past, oh, 16 or so months. What lessons from the pandemic and quarantine did you work into this book? Well, it's funny because I've been writing the book since long before quarantine and then, um, lockdown happened. And honestly, I think the reason I brought this book to completion in lockdown was not because I had more time. Various people claimed people have more time in lockdown, but it wasn't people with small kids. <laughs> but it was because I was like, the world publishing industry going to collapse. I need to get this thing out before that happens. Actually, as it happens, book publishing has been a success story of the pandemic, but we didn't know that at the beginning. So I had a fire lit under my backside and finished it when I might otherwise not have done I think what's so interesting about the experience of the pandemic is that it has sort of created for so many people certainly a sense of like time being unmoored and out of control and is it dragging or is it racing? No one's, people's landmarks in time have all gone so they get very confused and, and distressed. But also this kind of feeling of how it sort of leads us to see that the, the ways we'd been spending our time prior to lockdown are not all totally given things that we just have to accept. I don't mean, I'm not one of these people who thinks that lockdown was like a net good and we should all like carry on living in that way as long as possible. But people stopped commuting. People stopped staying in their office till 6.30 at night to show that they were there at their desks and found that they could actually do their jobs without that. People found themselves only able, if they were at home, to sort of do gardening or baking bread was another thing that everyone suddenly started doing until all the yeast supplies ran out people did report like strange sort of a sense of kind of bittersweet gratitude, right? That they were sort of, you start to see what matters. And obviously that's partly because a very large number of people are dying. And so the fragility of life is incredibly obvious as well. But like, you know, at least for the beginning bit, the time when we were all applauding emergency workers on our doorsteps at 7 p.m. in New York City was really moving. And it was really kind of like, oh, this is a good way to spend your time. I mean, not all these things carried on being exactly the same, but I think it's just a real sort of bringing into focus of how we're spending our time. And if you are someone who thinks all I want to do is get back to the way life was exactly the same before the, the pandemic, then fine. But there's an opportunity to be conscious and to say, like, maybe that isn't the thing for me. And we see it, right? There's many, many reports, both of sort of 
relatively upper income, younger people leaving jobs and going off around the world because you only live once. And then also of restaurants finding it harder and harder to recruit people, perhaps partly because those restaurant workers are just like, oh, maybe I'm not going to do this now. If, if the whole world is so insecure, maybe I'm not going to pursue this particular kind of insecure employment if there's no particular benefit to doing so. So there's this kind of moment of possibility that we could capitalize on. To what degree do you think it's that the quarantine gave us the excuse to not do things we didn't want to do? And to what degree do you think it's people actually becoming more aware of their own mortality? That's funny. I guess it's both. I guess I almost want to say those are the same, the same thing, because the idea that you might want to spend your time differently is sort of inextricably linked to your mortality, right? Because if you live forever, it would, just wouldn't matter. Like, I mean, I think it would be hell to live forever for various reasons. But if you did, I could work in an office in downtown Manhattan for a couple of centuries and then live on the top <laughs> of a mountain in the Himalayas for a couple of centuries. There'd be no, there'd be no rush. You'd try all these lives. So... I think that these two things are connected. So I think, for example, one thing that happened in lockdown for people who had been used to busy social lives before was the sort of temporary end of FOMO, right? You're just like, there's nothing to miss out on. So you don't feel that you're missing out on it. And that might, if you sort of reflect on that, that might cause you to understand, just to get onto another of my soapbox points, that like FOMO is a really weird thing to feel because you're always missing out on almost everything by definition. And so maybe you can go back into the world where where there is FOMO with less of it yourself because you see the truth of the situation now, which is obviously there are a thousand things happening in a big city on any evening that you could be at but aren't. And maybe that's fine. Yeah. All right, a couple more questions and we'll wrap it up. If you knew for sure that you were going to die tomorrow, how would you spend your day? Oh, God. That's a wild question. Well, it's such a cliche, though, but yeah. like, have you thought about, yeah. like, truly, if you were going to die, how would you do it? What would you do? I sort of feel torn between the most elevating and important activities and then just, like, there's various people I wouldn't mind telling, telling them what I thought of them. <laughs> <laughs> you mean expressing your gratitude to your friends? Right, exactly, loved ones? Yeah. Because that, that's mean, what I heard to answer, that, to answer that question incredibly seriously to the point that I find it very upsetting, I, I'm sure I would just want to spend the time with my closest loved ones. I can't imagine that you would want to do, that anyone would ultimately want to do anything other than that. And I think that, but I also think from having read people's accounts and spoken to people's accounts of being in some equivalent to that situation, not quite, you know, the next day, that you might also find that kind of just everything was suffused with, it wouldn't be joy, I don't think. I think it would be much worse than that but a kind of vividness that is like at some point the fact that we're here is kind of more amazing than the question of exactly what we're doing while we're here and so it might be that sort of anything would have that that level of meaning just because it's like just occasionally you glimpse this you know even in happier times right you're sort of like hang on being on the planet is just a mind-bendingly slim chance and a sort of extraordinary, inexplicable thing. And nobody knows how to explain consciousness. And it's all just so weird and amazing. It's just as weird as amazing and as amazing if I'm stuck in a traffic jam as if I'm in some particularly beautiful surroundings or something. Base jumping in the Dolomites. Right, exactly. So speaking of that very issue, I'm going to put a link to Monty Python's The Galaxy Song from The Meaning of Life in the show notes. Okay. <laughs> Do you recall the song? Dimly. I mean, I know the meaning of life. I'm trying to think. Um, 
What's the Galaxy song? Remind the me. The Galaxy song. Hang on a second. I got to go to it while we're talking about it. Um, <laughs> so the Galaxy song, remember the meaning of life is they're trying to explain what life is all about and how tragic it is and how short it is and all that kind of stuff. And the Galaxy song, Mr. Wonderful pops out on this woman and whatever life gets you down, Mrs. Brown, and things seem hard or tough and people are stupid, obnoxious, or doffed, and you feel like you've had quite enough... Just remember that you're standing on a planet that's evolving and revolving at 900 yes. miles per hour. You remember the song? Right. Yeah, I do know. Yeah. <laughs> that's orbiting at 19 miles a second. So it's reckoned a sun that is the source of all our power. And he goes on with all these just like the yeah. vastness of the universe that is expanding and expanding. And so, so remember how amazingly unlikely is your birth. And pray that there's intelligent life somewhere up in space because there's bugger all down here. Yes, yes, I didn't know that. Anyway, sorry to take such a diversion there, but like... No, it's not a diversion. It's exactly the point. And I kind of wish I put it in the book. (laughs) Well, I'll put a link uh, to it in the show notes along with a link to your website because I know our listeners want to find out more about you, sign up for your newsletter. And I want to finish up on our last question. Do you feel rich? On my bad days... I feel like nothing would ever satisfy the sort of insecurity and desire for more, right? I feel like you could never financially feel rich enough because all the pressures are towards the idea that you need more and you need more and you need more. But on my good days, which I think are increasingly frequent, I can see the absurdity of that. And I can see just to not have any absolutely massive problems right now in this moment is just incredible that's just amazing that's just absolutely brilliant and i i I like how could you want anything more well hopefully through your writing and contemplation of the book that all of our listeners are going to go out and get four (laughs) thousand four thousand weeks time management for mortals by my guest oliver berkman that we will all have the opportunity to be a little bit more aware of how special each of those moments is oliver thank you for joining once again great to see you thank you so much for asking i had a great time 